The Lord be with you. In the framing first story of the scriptures, we're introduced to the human race. Creatures who are given everything they need in an absolutely pristine setting. And in that beautiful place, humanity is unsatisfied. The man and the woman give in to temptation, and the fallout and the aftermath is brutal. The human race knows shame and fear and suffering. As biblical themes go, temptation can be a really hard pill to swallow. Because if we're really going to talk about any of this in a community like this, with any sort of honesty, something so deeply devastating, something so brutal and revealing, we do need some assurances. We need some words of comfort and hope along the way, don't we? How well we know the shape of our dissatisfaction. Temptation is a part of our default setting. We are surrounded and infiltrated by our tempters, presented with every shortcut and opportunity, seduced by our desires and our appetites and our longings. Not to mention that secret cubicle of our soul where we've found footing in the parts of our lives for all those fresh new challenges which present themselves. Do we really need any of those reminders of the times we've lost our way? Words or actions we wish we could take back? The damage we've done to ourselves and our relationships, to strangers, even people we will never even meet? I don't think... Many of us need those reminders. After all, that's what waking up at 3.30 in the morning is for, with pangs of sudden regret for something that happened 20 years ago, right? Like I said, we need words of comfort, please. When the Son of Man, the human one, made his home among us, he walked the earth as one of the tempted. And Jesus' response to this testing isn't just a theological box to check off. This response to the voice of the tempter is what shapes everything he does. If we want to begin to make sense of Jesus' surprising behavior in the Gospels, or the strangeness of his preaching, like on the Sermon on the Mount, it helps to first spend some time in the desert with Jesus and the devil. This time in the desert is a lesson for us, one that shows us what it looks like to serve the world like Jesus does. These temptations help people like us serve the world with integrity and care. We ignore these lessons at great cost. Because when the church is vulnerable, exposed, and hungry, when we have a plan or a scheme or an agenda or a dream, a building project, or a ministry policy. When we put our hands to work in the world, we need to be clear. We need to navigate so many temptations and hard choices. We need so much guidance and wisdom. We need to learn to listen to the voice of the Spirit. For a little over 300 years, 
the second temple in Jerusalem had been a relatively modest structure. A place in worship, of worship and sacrifice reconstructed by a grateful people. People who had returned at last to the holy city after a long captivity in a strange land. Under the rule of the infamous collaborator and despot Herod the Great, though, the second temple became a truly splendid site, more than doubling its footprint to over 14 hectares. The upgraded temple was an architectural marvel. For comparison, the Alberta legislature grounds just down the road are around 23 hectares. This temple took up a lot of space. It was one of the biggest construction projects in the first century. An engineering marvel, and Herod spared no expense. This beautiful temple complex would have a life all its own, the focal point for a people. The beating heart of Judaism, the temple was a bustling city within a city with busy markets and courtyards and stairways and archways and porticos, with crowds and so many people, priests and soldiers, clerics and caretakers and men and women of humble means, beggars and pickpockets and really rich folks, merchants and animals and faithful worshippers from different sects of Judaism, tourists and thousands of wide-eyed pilgrims who, after many miles, would at last set foot on the temple grounds. You may remember the first temptation had just been a warm-up. A cheap trick. Stones into bread. An entirely understandable moment of self-gratification in a private, lonely place. Maybe a few Morsels of nourishment for a Messiah's empty stomach. Easily rationalized. But we know that Jesus doesn't need to prove who he is. He won't skip the line or cut off a little extra slice of creation for himself. Jesus stands with the rest of us creatures who live under the sun, walking the same earth where the wind blows and the rain falls on the just and the unjust The human one stands with us. As Jesus' empty stomach grumbles, the devil takes him to a high place, and not just any place, 46 meters above that busy crowd, the pinnacle of the great temple in the holy city. If you really are the Son of God, then throw yourself down from here. Because it is in writing God will give orders to his angels to protect you, and they will carry you around with their hands so you won't even stub your toe on a rock. On the pinnacle of the great temple, the human one and the tempter. And naturally, the devil is quoting Moses from Psalm 91, because, of course, that's what the devil does. More than a few times I've heard people Really surprised that this is how one would be tempted. Should we be surprised? I don't think so. It's safe to say that most of us have heard the Bible used and twisted and misused and exploited. For generations, these scriptures have been handed down, translated, curated, interpreted, parsed, sorted, portioned, marketed, distributed, published, 
dropped from airplanes and smuggled across international borders. And these very same texts have been manipulated and mined as a resource to be exploited, sometimes as a tool of oppression, quite often with really horrible outcomes. Scripture used as a corrosive agent or an anesthetic, the words of Scripture have been employed with such startling and sometimes terrible effects in human history Little wonder that so many people come to the scriptures with trepidation. Scripture can be dangerous. How often do we have to hear about yet another corrupt and dangerous church leader or pastor, some religious leader sanctifying and celebrating their toxic behavior with a whole assortment of catchy Bible one-liners? The human heart is so vulnerable to the whispered lies that would deceive us, made such, so much more palatable with a little dose of the sacred scriptures. If the first temptation was an attempt to exploit Jesus' private physical hunger, this call for a stunt for the crowds at the temple is an assault from an entirely different angle. You believe this scripture stuff, right? They say you're even an expert in this. Read it for yourself. It's all right there in the text. These verses promise protections which you'd be crazy not to take advantage of. Trust in the promise of scripture, Jesus. What better way to prove who you are? Wouldn't a fabulous display, a a leap of faith, really do the trick once and for all? The second temptation is an appeal to force God's hand. Make God an offer he can't refuse. A spectacular leap of faith blessed by a few Bible verses. Better yet, perform it in the holiest place in the holy city where the gathered people worship and pray. The devil asked Jesus to test the whole system. Think of all the times God promises protection and sustenance So many assurances of his love and care for us, angels catching us, really? Such outrageous promises, let's make it happen, Jesus. It's the invitation to settle so many troubling questions of scripture. Any doubts you might have about yourself with one life-threatening display. With an added bonus, who knows, maybe there's a chance that the Teeming masses gathered in the crowds below will will look up for maybe just a moment from their busy lives and the habits of their day. And there they will behold the Son of God held aloft in the temple court by angels. That would be so cool. (laughs) Wouldn't it, Jesus? Jesus responds to the devil's Bible study with his own selection of scripture. A quote from Deuteronomy. It is written in another place in scripture, don't test the Lord your God. Jesus doesn't even try. He doesn't need to argue with or contest the words of Psalm 91. He doesn't get defensive. He just places that psalm alongside the larger story of scripture. Jesus' response is trust. 
The trust that holds in tension the question of God's care for us alongside the very real fears and worries and threats and doubts in the world. What the Son of Man lived and embodied is a difficult thing for us. It's a hard thing. It takes a whole lifetime of practice, and even then, I'm sure there will be moments when you feel like a beginner. Can we learn to live into this tension? Can we be formed by such an abiding trust? Oh, we of little faith who so often catch ourselves bargaining with God as we juggle our doubts and our fears, sometimes latching on to a verse or two of Scripture, sometimes even hoping to force God's hand. We fail in this all the time. Friends, the life of faith is not a puzzle to solve. It's not a stunt or a performance, and it's not a form of manipulation. We're not trying to get God's attention. We are not called to restlessness or desperation. We are simply invited to trust our maker. Faith lives into the promise that God loves us and wants what is best for us, even when we feel darkness pressing in. Just as another psalmist in Psalm 139 sings from a very tight-sounding place, even in the darkness, even, sorry, even the darkness is not dark to you, O Lord. The life of faith is an expression of the human experience, informed by grace and mercy and the Practice of faith helps us find our own place in the larger story of God's mercy, even in the midst of so many threats and adversaries. Psalm 91 is often called the soldier's psalm, which is understandable, considering it says things like, You who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. When I hear this psalm, especially called a soldier's psalm, I can't help call to mind the heart-wrenching image of young soldiers huddled together in muddy trenches, smoking cigarettes and praying a psalm of protection as bullets fly all around them and bombs crater the earth while at the very same time, a few hundred meters away, an enemy with a different shaped helmet and a different colored uniform in another muddy trench prays the same psalm of protection. Friends, in so many ways we are pitted against one another and tempted with that one great lie, the lie that tells us that only some of us are the children of God. Is this why we worry? Is this what makes us wonder if we have been forgotten? Are we tempted to take matters into our own hands? As if we have mastery of any corner of this world? As if there were such a thing as control over what comes tomorrow? The Son of God was tempted in this way. Jesus was 
has covered the bare desert ground that we all know so well. As we continue the season of reflection, and even hopefully, maybe, the shedding of some excess baggage, is there a way that we can practice this sort of trust? Can we embody this posture? Maybe you can tell us later in the Zoom time the practices that have helped form this sort of simple trust in your life. But maybe for a few moments, if you're okay with being a little weird, would you maybe practice a little prayer with me? Something a little different, but could you reach out your hand with me? Reach out your hand and find that thing, that doubt, that fear, that grief that plagues you. That thing you know you have no control whatsoever over. And grip it tight. Hold it tight till your knuckles turn white. Find that dark place in your heart that tells you You've been forgotten. Name it. Hold it. Breathe for a minute and slowly, won't you let it go? No hurry. Take as long as you need to take, opening your hands, trusting in the God who loves us like dear children. Friends, this is how people like us prepare our hearts for all of the adventures that God has for us in the world. Amen.